A few years back, I had a great time talking with Scott Billington, a diehard trend follower with some very strong convictions about how long-term trend following can be done differently to many in our industry. Scott shared some great stories about real-life experiences that had shaped their approach, and I'm excited to share with you some of the key moments today. So sit back and relax and enjoy these unique views and observations from Scott. And if you would like to listen to the full conversation, just go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash 25 and also 26. So I started putting together basically a trading model. And the, in my opinion, there were kind of three big picture decisions somebody had to make when it when it when you talked about what kind of trader you were going to be and the first was was discretionary or systematic and mechanical sure and so i would define discretionary as i bring in different inputs whatever those inputs might be i weigh them in a non-standard fashion meaning that i don't weigh them necessarily the same way every time I might bring in the same inputs, I might look at different ratios, but sometimes input A overwhelms input B, and sometimes input B might overwhelm input A, regardless of that might be. And then I would make the trade decisions in that fashion. Sure. Systematic, I define as, as I do the exact same thing every time. Right. I might argue that if you have any discretion, then you're discretionary. Sure. So that even if I have a mechanical model, but I decide seven times a year to override it, I suspect those seven times a year are going to be seven of the more volatile and the, you know, the, the larger outcome periods. And, and in essence, you have a discretionary model, which is fine, but, but that you're a discretionary trader. Sure. And the reason that I and we have gone with systematic is is threefold. The first is that we wanted something that the efficacy of which could be at least estimated through historical modeling and backtesting and the like. Yeah. And so if I'm a discretionary trader, one of the difficulties we found was how do I know that my theory is accurate? Sure. I think that XYZ, whatever XYZ is, and it might make perfect sense, but what I have there is a, is a good hypothesis that will be interesting to test, but I really have no method of testing it. Sure. And, and therefore, no, no way to, to prove that it, at least my idea had worked in the past. Uh, the second reason that we went with a more systematic uh, model is, is that we felt like it would be much easier to apply to a wide variety of markets. Sure. If I were going to be, uh, you know, and that also ties into the inputs we might use, but if I were going to be discretionary and I were using, you know, attempting to trade the yen and cotton, it would perhaps be very difficult to be an expert in both of those two markets. Sure. Now, you could be discretionary and not necessarily have fundamental or, you know, inputs, but that, that'll be a second part of this answer right and the primary reason that we wanted to be systematic is is that we felt like we wanted the emotions taking taken out of the trading process yeah that we wanted something that was repeatable 
so that I could say the same decisions that I made in June of 2004, I'm going to make in December of 2018. Sure. It's the same process. It, it's, a, it's a much more repeatable process than you know, my, you know, my making weighing all these different factors. Yeah. And the other thing is, is that, and is that we think that it's, I don't know about impossible, but extraordinarily difficult to separate your decision-making process from your own emotional state at a given time. Yeah. I think it's probably a bit fanciful to say that I would make the exact same decisions on the day that i my wife left me as the day that my son won an Olympic gold medal. Sure. And much, and, and, you know, not only things, but also within trade. Yeah. If I've just had four straight up 15% months, I, I think it's extremely difficult to bring the same analysis that if I just lost, if I'm in the middle of a 30% drawdown. Yeah, that's true. And what, and what we basically said was, that my wife has just walked out on me has no, should not have any effect on the trades that I take. Sure. So the second thing we looked at was, was okay, what kind of time frame are we going to trade? You know, if you look at time frame as a spectrum, am I going to be shorter term or longer term? And, and is there some logical reason to, to make that selection? Mm. And we've elected to be longer term for one, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's not a very sexy reason, but it, it's in our minds extremely important. Is is that the is it that random trading's expected outcome in a frictionless or costless world would be to break even? And so, if I'm trading randomly, my expected loss is my costs. Mm -hmm. My commissions that I pay, and more importantly, the bid-ask spreads that I pay. Sure. And then that's also going to encompass any kind of gaps or you know slippage generally. slippage in a fast market. But again, that's just a wider, in essence, a wider bid-ask spread. And those costs come into play every single time I trade. Mm. But they're fixed. So if I hold a trade for eight minutes, the bid-ask spread is just as wide as if I held it for eight months. Mm. I might get a little break on commission for my brokerage, but at the end of the day, the, the holding period of my costs is in, it has no impact on my costs. My costs are going to be fixed regardless of my holding period. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at it from, a, from that perspective and you say, okay, my, the amount and, and what, we'll call, what we call a trading edge is, is, is a non-random entry and exit decision. It means I have some non-random method of deciding when I'm going to buy and when I'm going to sell. And the amount above randomness that my method needs to have to break even is my costs. Sure. The costs are, in a, in a casino terms, the costs of the house edge. Right. That's how... how positive I need the deck to be, or, or that's the amount that I need to be able to forecast future price moves um, to break even. Mm. And so we would consider forecasting future price moves to be extraordinarily difficult. Therefore, we want that hurdle to be as little as possible. Yeah. Makes sense. Does that makes sense, Neil? Yeah. You see where we are with that? Definitely. Now, there is a 
other side of that coin. A shorter term method is going to have more instances in a given time period and therefore a smaller net profit, meaning after cost profit, can can be profitable sure. or can have a can have a good method. So I need a larger gross edge because I'm going to give up so much more by edge in the costs, but a smaller net edge can be profitable in a shorter term. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So with that, the lower hurdle to clear with the lower cost um, parameters to us was an overwhelming argument for, for having a longer term method. Since we are talking about cost to this point, I'm just wondering, I mean, obviously cost today for trading is a lot lower than they were in the mid 90s. Um, does that change your view in, in, in some sort? Some, but it, not particularly. I mean, it's still, I mean, we run, we track our costs very closely. Sure. And when you add it all up and average them over, I think, 30,000 contracts we traded in X amount of years or whatever, we still see including rolls, you know, we still see about $35 a round turn. Okay. So if I'm a CTA that does 3,000 round turns per million. Yeah. It's an expensive. 35 uh, times 3,000. Yeah. That's $105,000 a year. Yeah. That's 11%. Yeah. So the best guys in the world make 20 that's half of that. Mm. So if I just do immediately 1,500 round turns, this other guy's got to beat me by 5.5% a year just to tie me. Mm. You see what I mean? Sure. And we'll probably touch on this later, but to us, that's, a, that's what we would call, that's a fact. Right. That's not an opinion, and it's not something that's based on empirical evidence. Sure. That's just a straight mathematical fact. So when we get into modeling and testing and all that there's a huge weakness in that it's all empirically based and i can try to make it my empirical basis as solid as possible i can try to make it as robust as possible but at the end of the day the future might just be completely different than the past sure true and in which case all of those you know that's the the you know black swan kind of idea that Tlaib put forth in his series of books, and it's a very accurate one. Mm. However, if I'm saving 5% a year in costs, that's, that's not perceptible to a black swan. Sure. In fact, it, is, it can only be helped by a black swan in that, that the less I trade and the wider my trading parameters are, the less impact massive gaps would have on my, on my outcome. Yeah. And that makes the, sense. You see where yeah, I am there? I get that so what I want to do is I want to line all these facts up in my favor mm. before I'm forced to use empirical evidence. Yeah. That makes sense? Sure. Sure. I mean, think about it this way. A truly losing trading strategy, by definition, has to be as rare as a truly winning one. Right. Right? Right. Because well, I could just take the opposite of the trade. Sure. If you had a truly negative losing expectancy, that is very valuable. Because I could just take the opposite of your trades and I'd make money. Yeah. So those have to be very rare, correct? Sure. Or 
as rare as a winner, which means that most trading is random. People think that factor ABC says something about the future of price movement, but that factor is either fairly valued in the current price or does not have any impact. And it's no different than my drawing a trade out of a hat. But just because I draw a trade out of a hat, that doesn't mean that trade's going to be a loser. Sure. It's just a random trade. So most people are trading randomly with an expected loss of cost. Mm. I mean, almost by definition, that almost cannot not be true. Sure. So I have all these people, I say, okay, well, you know, Janet Yeltsin's going to say this thing about whatever interest rate, and okay, if that happens, the dollar's going to do why. Yep. And, and when they go through it, it might sound very smart, and I don't doubt they're well-educated, and it, it might be a well-thought-out opinion, but, but by definition, that is either n- not predictive of the future market move, or it's already been fairly valued by the market. Mm. Because most trades that people put on have to be random. They're sure. not losing. They're ran- You see what I mean? Sure. Sure, sure. I mean, I was a market maker, and I would stand in my pit, and I'd look around, and maybe not including myself, but I'd think, you know, because a lot of guys made a lot of money, and I'd be like, you know, there are 100 guys in here, and the average take-home, after their own costs of paying commissions and paying clerks and renting the seats and all that, is maybe half a million dollars. So that's $50 million a year that this pit makes. Hmm. Well, who pays that? Sure. It's the people who want to take positions, yeah. right? Definitely. So when we look at that and we think about costs, we think about this is exactly the amount of non-random price behavior I have to capture to break even and then go on to be profitable. Yeah. And the lower that cost is, the lo- less of anomaly I have to capture and even more importantly, the more room I have for the future to be worse than the past. Sure. Nobody ever started trading a model that didn't make money in the past, right? <laughs> that's that's, <true>. that's happened never. <laughs> no investor has ever allocated money to a trader that didn't have a winning track record. <laughs> that is very true. But we don't know if those things were luck sure. or skill. And so what I'm saying is, is when, when we test something and it made X percent over whatever, and we do our things to try to make sure that's as, as, as robust as possible. We have to be, if the future's the same as the past, we don't have a worry in the world. Yeah. And if it's better than the past, well, we definitely don't have a worry <laughs> in the world. Yeah. But what we need to worry about is, what if it's still an anomaly, it's still a, a capturable, persistent, non-random price movement? Mm whether it's the mispricing of a, of a corn crop yield or the mispricing of a, of a more quantitative measure, whatever my inputs are, what if that anomaly exists in the future, but less than what we've seen in the past? Yeah. Can I still make money? That's it for now. And remember that if you want to listen to the full conversation with Scott, please go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash 25 and forward slash 26. Now, if you enjoyed this short insightful clip from a past episode, 
from the show, then you will love the free book I'm giving away right now. It's called The Many Flavors of Trend Following and includes some of my best insights on perhaps the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Get your free copy at toptradersonplug.com forward slash book right now and start your own journey today. And again, just go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book and make sure to tune back into the podcast or YouTube channel next week for more exciting and engaging conversations. Until next time, take care.